John the Viking Mauser here with the Get Stronger Diet Podcast. Today my guest is Nick Hadge. How are you doing today? I'm awesome, thank you. How are you? Doing pretty good. <clears throat> um, so uh, let's get started with a little background. Um, I just want to get the uh, listeners <clears throat> to um, kind of get to know you a little bit and um, yeah. you know, see how you got into... Uh, lifting weights and stuff. So uh, when was the first time you got into that and picked up a barbell and all that? Um, I want to say I was about 12 years old, to be honest. Oh, wow. Um, I was always the obese younger brother. So my brother uh, was always like the athletic, like uh, stud of all sports. And I was kind of like the weird younger brother who likes like karate and playing the drums and all the weird stuff. And uh, I was like, all right, like, I don't want to be like, keep getting overweight like I was. And I was like, I'm just going to train for general fitness. So believe it or not, like my original journey just started for pure fitness. Oh, wow. I know, so, right? so what kind of stuff were you doing then? Um, it was uh, honestly almost like football type training, just like at a very uh, regressed scale. And that's back. So we're talking like maybe like seventh grade. Okay. And uh, I was always too heavy, actually, to play football growing up. So it was like, all right, I'm, I'm not going to like try and cut weight for I never liked sports anyways. So I was like, whatever. Um, so I started uh, like exercising seventh grade. And then seventh and eighth grade were middle school. Come high school, they were like lifting. We're making you play football. Uh, I like, they literally were like, where you're playing, like you're a massive, like I, I was 230 pounds in the seventh grade. Oh, wow. So like, yeah, it was like, they were like, all right, you're like, you're a big boy. So they, so come high school, they made me. So then I was like, okay. Then I got more serious about training and that's when I like totally fell in love with like performance in general. Very cool. <clears throat> uh, so, so what were some of your, um, your high school lifts like, uh, you know, I'm sure you so know it was like uh, it was classic bench press. I didn't deadlift back in high school for whatever reason. It was bench press, squat, and hand clean. And I remember um, after coming out of senior year, I had just hit a 400 pound bench press. I uh, I had and by that time I was like 220 pounds. I had just missed 405, so I didn't ever get the four plates. But I got 400, so I was proud of that. That's cool. And then I had like a 535 back squat, like real, real depth and all that. But uh, and then yeah, after after high school, I basically stopped back squatting and bench pressing for a couple of years because of getting strongman. Yeah. So how did you uh, how did you kind of come across um, strongman and all that? So my older brother, um, Zach Hadge, who's two years older than me, me and him played high school football together and trained together. Like, that's where we really developed our love for performance and training. He was in college before me, going to Springfield College. And I was I was still playing uh, my senior year of football at the time. Um, or maybe this is junior year when he was going into college. And uh, he tried out football and didn't like it quit after like a couple months of it and was like okay i want to get strong so really crazy story my brother basically walked into like the center of campus and 
walked up to some person behind the desk and said, hey, I, uh, I want to know about the powerlifting uh, club. And the person behind the desk was Rob Kearney. Oh, it wow. was basically like, uh, yeah, I'm the president. Nice to meet you. It was like, uh, show up at practice, blah, blah, blah. So Zach and Rob Kearney met each other while I was still playing high school football. They did powerlifting for a little bit together. And then uh, Rob Kearney showed Zach strongman a little bit down the line. And then I'm just watching both of those two start strongman. And I basically was like, okay, once high school football ends, I'm going to apply to Springfield College, that's where they were going, uh, exercise science. I want to learn about the human body, and I want to uh, get as strong as I possibly can. I thought strongman was just so cool. And I was like, okay, I know what I'm going to be doing. So I literally went to college like knowing I was going to specialize in strongman, which is pretty crazy. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So how long from that point when you got to the college until you did like your first uh, competition? Not that long. Um, I don't, when was my first competition? I want to say I was maybe 16 or 17 years old. It was Lightning Fitness 1, I think, which was a Matt Mills show in uh, Connecticut at Lightning Fitness. And uh, that was actually Rob Kearney's first competition win which is crazy because it was my first ever competition at all. And I think I was 16 at the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> they threw me into the fire. I mean, I didn't even really, I think it was my first time ever hitting a couple of the events. I think it was like my first time ever touching the dumbbell, but they were like, Hey Nick, like you got to try it. And, uh, I went into the, uh, into the two thirty one men's open, just, just giving it a shot. And, uh, I, I fell in love. Very cool. Yeah. <clears throat> So did you get, um, were you getting direct training from uh, Rob Kearney at that point then? Um, I wasn't actually. So we all shared the same coach at the time. Um, well, actually, so before then, they had a separate coach. I think Dan Jaffe was his name. And then um, a guy, Pat Davidson, who was my coach the whole time, um, he was really our coach for the first two years of me going to college there. So, yeah, Pat Davidson is uh, kind of like a mad scientist. A lot of people know him for his weird training, and he's just a, an absolute mad genius. So, uh, yeah, Pat Davidson was programming for all of us at that time. Oh, okay, very cool. Very cool. Um, he was also our professor. Sorry. So he was uh, our college professor, which was even crazier. <laughs> um, he just so happened to be assigned as my uh academic advisor which was like totally by chance it could have been like seven people and uh so but at the time i was terrified of pat because he he was basically this genius super ripped mad scientist guy who we were all like terrified of him and his knowledge but he ended up becoming a brother of ours and one of our best friends and that is actually uh our, my coach has even changed since then, but Pat Davidson was the one who really showed us everything and taught my current coach most of what he knows as well as the rest of our team. Very cool. Um, so from there, that, that's how you got started and everything. Um, like, when did you know, like, hey, I, I'm good at this. Like, I'm going to go, you know, further and, and see what, where it ends up. Um, I would say the first time was when I won heavyweight teenage nationals. Okay. Um, and that was just a blast. I mean, that was in Delaware and, um, my current coach and business partner, Andrew Triana, 
Um, it was his idea to do the competition. Um, me and him were both freshmen at the time, and I think freshmen, maybe sophomores. And um, he, he was like, hey, I know this is crazy, but the competition is like two and a half, like maybe three weeks away. And like, I think you should just do it with me. I'm doing the show. And at first I was like, no, I don't want to do it. But then uh, I'm, I was like, okay, let's do it. And uh, me, Zach and Andy made like a road trip down to Delaware for my first big show. And I'll never forget it. Teenage Heavyweight Nationals. That was probably the first time where I was like, okay, let's see how far I can take this. Yeah, very cool. Um, and, and kind of... Um you know, what, like what shows uh, have you done since then? Like some of the some of the bigger shows. Um. Well, so I did um, teenage nationals. I won the junior nationals in 2016, and then uh, that qualified me for the junior world championship in 2016. Um, I came in first place in that as well. So that was kind of, and that was really what uh, set my career going. That like that set my career on its on its way because. Junior, uh, the Junior World Championship was what got me uh, Ultimate Strongman, all the overseas competitions, mm-hmm. um, which is great because I'd be competing with like Zadrina Savickas and just like all these superstars that I could only dream of competing against. Winning the World Championship was like, okay, like this federation is going to invite me back next year and the year after that. So multiple Ultimate Strongman, uh, I did, I competed in the Ultimate Strongman World Championship. Uh, last year, me and my brother did the Team World Championship. Actually, um, I think it was two years ago today, or like around two years ago today, I also competed in uh, Giants Live. That was a, that was a lot of fun. I think uh, Rob Kearney won it that year. <clears throat> and uh, was, that, was, that, was that here or was that in uh, Europe? Sorry, say that again? Was that competition here or was that in Europe, the Giants Live? Giants Lab was um, in America. That was in uh, Kentucky. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. That was a lot of fun. Um, so, if you don't mind, um, so the the whole pro card thing is, is confusing to a lot of people. Um, yeah. You know, I, I train a lot of people, and they ask me all the time, and I try to explain it, and it's just, you know, every federation, it's just all over the place. Um mm-hmm. Can you uh, just explain a little bit about how um, technically you don't have a pro card, but, but you're going over there and you're competing with the pros and, and um, you're, you're getting paid or if not have the potential to be getting paid. Can you tell us a little bit about that? For sure. Um, so the pro card really is going to matter the most in America, of course. Um, but yeah, it's true. So, for example, in November, I'm going to be competing in England. I'm going to be competing against Martin Slices, the current world's strongest man. So I'm competing against the top-level athletes. And um, you do get paid for placing, like, uh, I, like, I think maybe everyone who goes to this gets paid at least some degree. But uh, it's better than nothing for sure. They pay for your flight and hotel. And you get to go over there and feel like a rock star. But technically in America, since I didn't go through one of uh, like the uh, NAS competitions, so basically you have to do a very specific competition to actually get your pro status. And um, doing so will allow you to compete in certain events. For example, for me, it would be appealing because competing in America's Strongest Man would be cool. But, uh, I mean, you have, uh, for example... 
Jerry Pritchett for a long time wasn't uh, didn't have his pro card, and he was like the world. He was like a world record deadlift holder. He competed at the Arnold multiple times, but he wasn't a pro, so he couldn't compete in America's Strongest Man. So he had to do like a show and whatever. He had to like jump through some hoops to get that done. So it's kind of uh, all about what you're aiming for, which kind of slices. Um, uh, last sometime last summer, and he was actually. I was explaining to him. I said, "Hey, why don't you want to do? A, like, why don't you want to get? I don't even know if he has his pro card to be honest. And he's the world's strongest man. Um, and it was like I was like, "Hey, like, why don't you want to do that? Like, you don't think America's strongest man would be cool?" And his exact response was, "America's strongest man would be cool, but world's strongest man would be cooler." Right. So I mean, it like really like aims at what you're gunning at, I guess. But the pro card thing, yeah, it can get like political. But I mean, hey, if you're competing with the best in the world, then it doesn't matter quite as much. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it is kind of a, um, I guess, political kind of thing and, and all that. But but yeah, you're right. You can you can work around it, you know, depending on what your goals are and stuff. Um, yeah. And, have you had any thoughts of, of going that route and trying to find a show just just to have it? Yeah, to be honest, um, something that's always had a special place in my heart is the idea of going to the Arnold as a heavyweight in Gimbled. Uh, really because I saw my brother do it. I saw I saw Zach win his lightweight pro card at the Arnold and go back one year later and win his heavy... And, uh, I mean, for me to get, like, the experience of seeing that firsthand, I mean, I got the coaches backstage with, like, Thor and Shaw before they would do their events, and it was like, okay, like, the amateurs are up next, but, like, you get to be back here and see all this stuff. The novelty of that, it all, it just resonated with me so hard. Uh, I think it's just something I would love to accomplish that one day. Seeing my brother do it was probably one of the best experiences of my entire life, so... Yeah, I, I was actually there. Uh, that that was really cool. Um, if you don't mind, can you can you tell us about that for ju- for just a moment? How did he get the opportunity to uh, to be at the Arnold and go up there, and then um, maybe talk about the weight disparity because he was I think he might have been the lightest guy to ever be on that stage. Yeah, so that's the pro state. My brother basically hit, the, hit this like crazy series of years. It started off because. Um, Winning his lightweight pro card got him the uh, automatic invite to the next year to win his heavyweight pro card. The heavyweight Arnold as an amateur gets the automatic invite for the top 10 main stage uh, the following the next year. Right. So it was because my brother won the heavyweight Arnold where it's like, okay, that gives you the, the automatic invite for the, the pro stage. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, and um, what, what did he weigh at that point? 45 pounds, which is absolutely insane. Uh, he was the lightest man in history to ever be, at the, be on the main stage. And it was just an experience, let me tell you. That was something I'll never forget. You said 245 pounds was the body weight? 45, 245. Yeah. And, um, yeah. He, I, don't think, I don't think he zeroed any events. So maybe one? I don't remember. Um... Maybe the log, and he like went at that thing like an animal. But I'm not. Sh- I'm to be honest, it was just such like an adrenaline rush. I just have like I like was blacked out for most of it. I was so excited. That was 
I mean, just being able to every single year go back and it was actually cool because uh, by the time when Zach won his lightweight pro card, you're still backstage. You still get to see all the athletes. From then till the time he was up on the stage with Thor, I kind of got to see Thor put on like 75 pounds every friggin' year and just get bigger and bigger and bigger, which, like, it was really cool to, just like that experience is something else. Yeah, yeah Zach is an animal for doing that. <laughs> yeah, very cool. You guys are super strong. Um, so we talked a little bit on... Uh, um, Instagram, because I, I think I used uh, you guys as an example um, for some uh, technique stuff, right? Um, yeah. And um, I'm always, always fighting with people about um, certain things, like laying back on the press and, and all that. Um, can you give us your thoughts on um, using a layback on a uh, an overhead press? For sure. Um, so you can look at it a couple ways. You can look at it from like a standpoint of like, all right, I've seen some videos where like Mateusz Kielikowski does that with well over 400 pounds. And it's like, okay, so the best in the world are doing something similar. And then it's like, okay, but why does that work? And if you look at it like, uh, from like a structural standpoint, um, the way I look at it is, uh, you're like, when you do that, right, you're worried about maybe like your upper back or something like that. Or maybe even like lower back, but if you're if you know, if you're squeezing your ass and your glutes as much as you can, that's going to touch your pelvis and protect your lower back from anything uh, going into basically anterior tilt of the pelvis. Um, your thoracic spine can do that stuff because anatomically it is a mobile area. So as long as your pelvis is underneath you and your glutes and your hamstrings are like structurally like holding you up, then your, th- your T-spine, your thoracic spine can go into that extension safely. Yeah. And I think, uh, with anything, um, you, you know, you have to know what you can handle, right? Like you, you see different, um, different degrees of that flexion. Uh, some people, you know, it's, they just barely lean back, like, like maybe like big Z, right? Like he's definitely backwards, but he doesn't look like some of these extreme black and white photos from like the 1972 Olympics where they were doing, I mean, some of those guys were, I mean, they were literally bench pressing the, uh, the bar, but, but they also, they were smaller, a little bit more flexible, things like that. Um, so you kind of have to know where your, your line is. Everybody's going to be a little bit different there. Um, but if, like you said, if you understand the structural, uh, the, the structures of it, how everything works and then what you're capable of, I think it's, it's, it's not only safe, I think it's ideal. It is because I think a big part of it is, um, knowing your own center of gravity. And I think that's also why big Z doesn't have to move too much because I think that guy's stomach throws his center of gravity off so well that he's basically leaning back really far, like anyway. So like, it really is like knowing your center of gravity and there will be an optimal, an optimal amount for everybody that might be different. Uh, like maybe like more so like on one person than another, but also you want to um, have things in your training that's going to allow you to be in those positions safely. So like things in your own in your own training that's going to kind of replicate like um, those movements, but allow you to have control in them. Yeah, for sure. And then um, <clears throat> I don't know if we had a conversation about it, but I don't, I used you guys in an, uh, another example with um, 
kind of a, a slightly rounded upper back in, in the deadlift. Um, man, people just go nuts about this all the time. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I know what mine are. What are your thoughts? So my thoughts are, um, if you're in that position accidentally, you probably shouldn't be there. Right. But if you achieve that position on purpose for a deliberate reason, you know what you're doing, I think it's the safest way to go. I'm actually in the process of uh, writing a, a deadlift ebook that I'm going to be releasing on the Performance Vibe website that's going to go really into depth about this. But like, uh, basically, uh, your thoracic cavity is your biggest air cavity that you can fill up. And if you're not utilizing that for tension and pressure, then you're missing out on some of the biggest uh, like pressure, like pressurizations that you could possibly use. Um, also, like I was talking about the pelvis earlier, if you're controlling your pelvis, you're preventing it from going into anterior tilt, then and you're maintaining a certain position from start to finish, then you're going to be shortening that you like your distance, like a really good rat, like uh, round back expansion deadlift will almost look like um, shorter. And like, it was very almost like, they didn't have to like move their body as much. And that's what you want. You want to be able to maintain a certain position through the entire lift. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I think, I think um, you said it better than I do, but yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And that, that's interesting. Uh, you talked about the, um, the uh, air capacity for, for the thoracic region and whatnot. So um, this is another thing I, I kind of, uh, I'm not super hardcore about it, but, I'm very picky about where people wear their belt. Um, do you have yeah. any, do you have any thoughts on where, where a belt should be worn and if it should be worn in different spots for different lifts? Um, yeah, I definitely do. Um, for example, when I'll do like a log press, I'll try and like wear it really, really low and like push my gut out with it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, for a deadlift, maybe just like a little bit higher, but like not even that much. I typically don't wear my belt that high, honestly. I'm also getting fat and my belt's getting tighter, so that's changing things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> something that I've noticed is um, I, I definitely wear the belt way lower um, on any overhead press, um, especially the log. A lot of that has to do with just so the log's not contacting the belt because you get a lot of slippage there. Um, but I also like to tilt it so that the back is higher than the front. Yeah, I, I like that too. Yeah, I think that helps um, with the layback a lot. Um, it just it's just it's probably mental, but it just seems like there's that little bit of a brace there. No, for sure, that angle is definitely going to offset and give you like the right support right where you need it. I totally agree with that. Very cool. Um, <clears throat> and and I see some people. Uh, I can't remember who was pushing this off the top of my head, but um, there's at least one like school that's doing this where they wear their belt like super high, like it's almost up on the upper lat uh, region. I, I think that's a bit, uh, I think it's a bit too much, um, especially for strongman because when you get your belt that high, it's going to get in the way of almost everything. Yeah, um, you actually want to know what's funny? I've actually. Uh probably more common than I think, but I've seen somebody go into a competition wearing two belts. Like, like not a soft belt with a hard belt over it, but like two stacked belts? Like a belt around, like, 
right where you were just talking, basically. I swear to God, it was pretty. I don't even remember the event or anything. I just remember my brother pointing it out and be like, "Yo, look at that!" And it's just like, yeah, I don't think it would help because I don't know. I think for like uh, that would only help in like a very controlled training environment where you're only using the belt to learn how to have a 360 degree expansion for the sake of getting a really good exhale. But I think when you're actually trying to get an optimal exhale, that's just going to get in your way. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, and, and you may have a different opinion, but there's, <clears throat> there's like millions of belts now, right? Like there's just, you can get a belt, of any made of any material and any size. And, um, it seems for a while, um, and, and I don't think it's getting any worse, but for a while, the belts were getting, um, taller, um, to the point where powerlifting's, you know, like the rule is, I think it's a four inch belt. Like you can't wear over four inches. Um, but Brian Shaw had a custom five inch belt made and then spud, um, ink started making these five inch belts. And, you know, they're for people that are, you know, seven feet tall. (laughs) um, Yeah, of course. That's interesting. I actually didn't know that. um, And then the thickness started changing, right? And and they started getting so thick and powerlifting said, hey, we're not allowing anything thicker than, I think it's 13 millimeter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are companies out there that was making them thicker and that's why they had to put a stop to this. So you can still buy a belt that's like, I don't remember what what the increments were. It might have been like 18 millimeters or whatever. Um. But in my experience, none of that really makes too much of a difference. I don't think the thickness of the belt um, or even the height of the belt uh, makes too much of a difference. Maybe if, like, if you are seven feet tall, there might be some uh, some issues there. Or, or on the other side, if you're really short, um, a four-inch belt might be too much. Uh, but I, I don't think it makes too much of a difference. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I totally agree. Um, I think you nailed it in saying basically everybody's going to have a certain ratio. So Shaw definitely would deserve the five inch belt just because like, it's like, yo, that guy's lumbar area is just flat out longer than anybody else. This guy's dinosaur bones. So like, it's just going to be like uh, proportional to the athlete, which I totally agree. I actually didn't even know that they're, uh, I didn't even know that they were doing all those belt options. I get so overwhelmed with it. I have been keeping the same belt, I think, maybe from Texas Power Concepts or something like that for, like, years. And I maybe even have a belt buckle that's not even the same company. But all I know is uh, I think mine's classic 13 millimeter and just, like, a standard. But it's just really, really stiff. Yeah. Like, you can't pinch it at all. And I think that's all that matters is you just don't want one that's going to be flimsy. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it has to be thick enough or made of a material to where you can actually you know, expand into it without it giving. Yeah. The rigidity is huge. And, uh, I noticed this cause I have a, um, like a four inch, 13 millimeter belt. <clears throat> and then, um, but I do Moss wrestling tournaments and okay. I bought a Moss wrestling belt from Ode Haugen. And, um, it's just, a I think it's two inches. It's a two inch belt. And, um, I forgot my belt at an event once and all I had was the moss belt and I wore it and it worked fine. And then sometimes I'll just put it on. I experimented with it. And I, I think I get just as much out of the moss belt um, as I do out of any other belt. And it's only, it's only two inches. Yeah. But that might be because, 
because of who it's from. If you thought about that, that belt has some magic in it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. <laughs> no, but that's interesting though. That like I never, I never thought. I feel, I would have because uh, I would have thought that that would make a difference. I would, I would feel like I would, you would want the four inches opposed to the two. But that's interesting. Now I, I do wear that one um, higher. I think uh, you know because you don't. You have to find the right spot for it because it's only two inches. Of course, uh, that makes sense. But yeah, I I, uh, I get just as much out of it. I think. I mean, um, that's if it's not a hundred percent, it's like ninety-seven percent. You know, I mean, it's pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. You're still getting like total body, like uh, compression all the way around your body. So yeah, yeah. But um, I, I actually like the uh, the two-inch belt for certain events because um, it allows. Uh, more torso movement so I can move um, side to side and, and I just have, I can move a lot better. It was designed for Moss wrestling so that you could be pulled in different positions without pinching yourself and all that. Um, yeah. Moving it back though would be perfect. Yeah. I really, I really like them. And, and of course it's smaller, so it's cheaper. So that's nice. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's, I didn't even, yeah. I didn't even think of moving it in events. That'd be perfect for like keg or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I use it on that stuff, block carries and all that, yeah. <clears throat> um, so, uh, let's see, um, pressing, deadlifting, um, what about uh, squatting? I don't think, I can't recall off the top of my head any squatting videos, but um, one thing that I uh, talk a lot about is you get, this usually happens at like colleges and, and um they're always like, look at the ceiling, look at the ceiling. What, what do you think about looking at the ceiling while you're trying to squat? I feel like that's probably not going to be the best cue. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the best squatter in the world either. So I guess that has, that says it's all its own thing, but um, I would, I would feel like for everything else, especially for the, for deadlift, I know they're different, but um, I feel like your ribs and your pelvis will kind of like listen to each other and will also listen to what your head does. So if you kind of go into a cervical extension like this, your ribs might do that more and then your pelvis might do that more also. And then you might lose control down the chain. Right. So it, it, it's tough, out, but I would feel like you wouldn't want to look towards the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's um I don't think it's a great idea and there was a lot of um uh research done. I actually think it was done with um MMA fighters and um like the position of their neck when they would punch and things like that and you you just generally have more power um when you're in a neutral position. And um, yeah. If you're looking literally clear up at the ceiling, you've broken um neutrality. Uh and, and it's going to depend a lot on what kind of squat it is. Cause I know like, uh, you know, power lifters with their wide stance and stuff, they're very upright now, um, in the suits and stuff, your, your raw guys, like they kind of have a natural more, um, forward lean. So it's almost like they're kind of looking like maybe 10 feet out and down almost. Um, so it really depends on what kind of squat you are. If you're an Olympic weightlifter and you're squatting, like clear down to sitting on the floor, you're kind of going to be more eyes directly straightforward, but I don't think that looking at the ceiling is ever a viable option. Yeah. My coach always used to tell me just look towards the horizon. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like also looking towards the ceiling isn't good because, uh, 
one thing is, uh, like, your occipital bone, like, I think it's your frame and magnum is, like, really small. Yeah. And uh, when you go into cervical extension like that, your spinal cord actually bends a little bit, and that actually cuts off circulation to your head. And it doesn't take much because it's, like, such a small pathway for that then. So, like, that would be another indicator that I think that wouldn't be optimal. Yeah. And um, I think, too, and this wouldn't be for everybody, but looking up, um, if you're, for some people that could be, uh, you could lose where you're at in space. Disorienting for sure. Your proprioception goes to shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's always my, been my thing. I, I always think like, why would you look up? You need to be like seeing what you're doing. Um, and, and that's kind of actually where I originally started to lean back on pressing, um, ironically, it had little to do with anything other than, hey, maybe I should watch this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it was easier to watch it if you're back. If it's straight over your head, you can't see it. And um, I have a tendency to look more down on the deadlift because it's like you should be watching what you're doing. Um, and, and that's just always made sense to me just from a, I guess, from a common sense standpoint. Yeah, I also always look down when I'm deadlifting. Um, I just feel like it helps maintain uh, basically rib control, which helps maintain pelvis control. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and uh, and that's not straight down. That's like it's like kind of out forward, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of debate. I hear. I actually see a lot of that too. Like, look up, look up when you when people are deadlifting, and I just I just don't see it. Even on even on a sumo. Um, deadlift I, I don't think i would look all the way up i think that would still be straightforward if anything yeah 100 <clears throat> percent. yeah that's definitely i feel like that's just like an outdated cue the whole look up thing yeah um yeah again i think it's it's a lot of um and nothing against them but it's a lot of uh regular sports kind of coaches and um, yeah 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 you know i don't i don't think that they're deadlifting for a different reason if that makes sense. So they're not, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And it's not the best for the athlete to get stronger, but maybe it works for playing soccer or something. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Definitely. So uh, let's change gears here. What's this, um, this knife thing. I see you do some stuff with some knives. How, How did this start? Um, funny. So yeah, I've been like a knife geek my whole life. It's actually right here. Uh, except it's it needs to be tuned up a little bit. The blade is jammed. I don't know how that happened. So I've been basically just uh, collecting knives since like ten or eleven years old. Oh wow! And I don't even really know why. I've just like always like I don't know why I started. I mean now I kind of know why. Like I just view knives as like a form of art, kind of. Yeah. And um, I just think they're really cool. They all have like a different like something totally different to them and each tells a story and all that. But, um, around the same time, maybe I was like 10 or 12. I, uh, used to play the drums and with that comes spinning the drumsticks in between your fingers. Yeah. So it's like, okay, my two hobbies were like knife collecting and playing the drums. And then, uh, one day somebody showed me a butterfly knife and I was like, okay, that's really cool. So, um, I've always had like a super, like, shitty butterfly knife for all like my whole life just kind of like whatever but i think over the last two or three years i've uh 
gotten a little bit more like serious and like i put like an investment i bought like a nicer knife because they could get expensive and oh yeah it's really just like a mindful tool for me. Like I'll flip it uh, during my movement prep or before I train. And it is like basically helps me get into that flow state. Yeah. It helps me kind of like, like get, find that like Zen state and uh, just like concentrate. And it's like my like little like uh, safety tool that grounds me. <laughs> now, please tell me you do this like in the warm up area at a strongman competition. Yeah, I, I actually totally do. But the only issue is, like, uh, now when I'm, like, flying to my shows and things like that, I can't bring it in an airplane. But uh, so the last time I competed in England, uh, me and my girlfriend actually walked throughout the streets of England to find a little Army-Navy store. Okay. And they had a beard comb variation butterfly knife. And I was like, boom, I'm buying it. So, like, I actually had something to flip around, which was pretty funny. So, Yeah. How how many of uh, how many of your competitors are just like I'm getting away from this guy? It's true. Actually, the other day, I wonder if I can find this picture. I don't know if can you see that picture? Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah. that was from Giants Live, and uh, I remember I had my my butterfly knife up in like I think it was Kentucky or something like that. And like I was just flipping it, and like some of the like some of the people, were, like some guy looked at me and was like, "Hey, like I don't think that's legal because butterflies, unfortunately, like they're unfortunately not legal." Right. And I was like, "Yeah, like most of my hobbies aren't legal. Sorry, man. Like, but <laughs> it's funny. It's tough. You can't travel with it. So yeah, it's <laughs> tough. But I do have a trainer knife sometimes that I'll walk around with. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, knife collecting is just like a total geek hot like. If there's one thing that I'm a geek for, other than, like, human performance and strongman, it's knife collecting. Like, I mean, right here, like, Benchmade butter, uh, Benchmade and Butterfly Knife. Oh, wow. These are, like, two staples for me. I love these things right here. <laughs> so, the reason I asked was I'm actually a knife guy myself. Um, really? And I have a few Butterfly Knives. I play around with them. Um, and... So when I was in, I went to Italy a few years ago, um, and Fox Knives is, um, that's where they're from. They're headquartered in Italy. Um, wow. there's also Fox Knives USA. I think that's in Detroit or something, but originally it was in Italy. And, um, I went there and spent way, like way too much money on knives. Knives are really expensive. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the cool thing was, so I bought all these knives in Italy, and um, I I called the airport to see, like, you know, like, what was up or whatever, and um, they're like, yeah, if you put them in your check bag, it doesn't matter. So I literally stuffed my luggage bag full of, I mean, there was even an axe. (laughs) That sucks. You lost them all, right? No, no, they, they, I put them in the check bag, and they, I picked them up when I landed in Pittsburgh and took them home. Really? Yeah, yeah. When, uh, as long you can't take it on the plane, like in, as a as a carry on, but the checked bag, yeah. th- there had to have been, I don't know, twelve knives in this bag. That's crazy, man! Wow, I'll have to see some of those one day. That sounds sick. Yeah, the the crazy thing is, so the the butterfly knives there, um, like. Here you can buy them, but you're not supposed to carry them, right? Like you could have yeah. one at your house; it's not a big deal, but you can't be like walking down the street with it. Um, in Italy, that's not the case. So their butterfly knives are magnetic, 
So they're actually really hard to flip because as soon as they get near each other, they close. So you can't flip Oh, them. that sucks. I would take the magnets out. Yeah. Well, that's what I did. Um, but but that's how you have to buy it. And uh, I just thought that was funny because there's it's this badass Fox Knives, like Italian butterfly knife. And I like pick it up and then and I'm like, why is this thing not? <laughs> it didn't. It wouldn't flip open, you know. And the guy's like, hey, you know, they have magnets in them and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's um, pretty funny yeah I thought that was crazy <laughs> very cool yeah man knives are still cool mm. it's hard <laughs> so do you have you done any um, like knife based martial arts or anything or no I, I honestly haven't I mean um, I do I do have a buddy that knows a lot about that and I mean he showed me like the basics on how to hold the knife but mm-hmm. other than that I mean uh, I don't know like I like don't thinking about knives in terms of like combat really because they're literally just like i like the, like the feel and the look and it's purely for art purposes for me yeah. so like i don't know like actually learning that stuff is like kind of like crazy <laughs> that's pretty cool <laughs> all right so what do you what's um what do you have next what's coming up next um do you have are you training for any shows right now do you have anything on the horizon um yeah so my brother and I are competing uh, November 3rd over in Nottingham, England for the Ultimate Strongman Team World Championship. Very cool. How does that work? It's going to be crazy. So it's uh, teams of two. And um, Zach and I are a team. We competed last year, and we took fourth place. We just missed podium, which was like a really big deal for us. So uh, this year we're coming for podium at the very minimum. We're very excited. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) I know. And that's November third. You said that's November that November third is when that is. Yeah, November third. Yep. Cool. Do they um, do they do a stream? Are you able to watch that live or? I'm not 100 percent sure to be honest. Um, there should be of some sort, especially because there's going to be so many big names in it. Uh, really funny. Another one of the teams that Zach and I are competing against. Rob Kearney paired with Martin Slices. Oh, nice. That's Isn't cool. that a crazy duo? So I just feel like you'll have to do some sort of live stream. If not, I'm almost positive they always release their shows like two weeks later on YouTube or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So. Strong, Strongman is notoriously bad at, <laughs> at, at streaming and getting things out there. I know. I mean, it's better than it has been. I mean, before we used to have to wait till like Christmas to see World's Strongest Man results, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is getting better, but it is, man. It's it's slow. <laughs> they must, no, they must have guys like me in the tech department. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Another thing that's kind of cool for um, the show that's coming up is my brother and I have had a buddy of ours basically uh, filming our training for the last few months, and he's going to continue. So it's basically like a small documentary like that's oh, going to wow. be about Zach and I leading up to the show. And uh, he's actually going to be coming with us over to England also to like really finish it off. So we have like a cool like mini documentary in the in the works right now that's going to be like kind of centered around that. Very cool. Very cool. <clears throat> yeah. um, so you mentioned um, you have an ebook coming out um, and, and you have a business. Um can you tell us about that? Um, just real quick, like, what do you do? Do you guys do seminars? What's your business all about? Um, For sure. Yeah. So um, it's called The Performance Vibe, and um, 
it was uh, Andrew Triana and myself were the ones who founded it. And it's basically built off of all of our training morals and perspectives that we've gained together since freshman year of college, fourth. Because uh, him and I were like the young pups as freshmen going into college, really learning everything from like all angles. But like, I think it, it's really unique to be like the younger kids in the scenario, like the young kids that like can learn from the old, like the elders basically. Um, so it's basically the performance vibe is a culmination of all of that where we currently offer online programming and um, also seminars as well. So, um, so far we've been to Canada, um, Texas, Andrew went to Europe for one, um, Boston, and New York for Strongman. Uh, those were all mainly Strongman seminars, but we do uh, seminars basically on anything uh, gyms just approach us to. It's basically, what do you want us to present based off of uh, what you see that we have for our uh, product, basically. And that's what we're working with. We're working in, no, uh, I think, end of November, we're actually going to be relaunching our website where we're going to have uh, a couple newer things available, such as uh, movement prep templates. For example, uh, movement prep is just like a fancy name for warm-up. Right. And it's going to be uh, certain warm-ups that are going to be like uh, specific to spe- uh, specific to like a stimulus of a lift that you're trying to get. So it's like, oh, here's like a, a great warm-up for like uh, X type of like lift that you're trying to get like and things like that that you'll be able to buy as well as different modalities of uh coaching very cool um uh, now the ebook's coming out uh that's a a deadlifting ebook are there other is this your first book or do you have others um i think we do have an intro to tpv ebook where um andrew and i basically talk about what we do and what we are I think that's a yeah, that's like a that's a short maybe ten page ebook. Um, so, but this is going to be the first one that I've done by myself, okay. and it's going to be basically me talking about the deadlift through my lens, where I'll be covering basically uh, deadlift anatomy and like all these different types of things. I'll be it's going to be centered around uh, conventional deadlift kind of strongman style, basically like how do I deadlift and how do I perceive it and what do I go about like approaching the deadlift. Um, which will have it with the program and like my favorite exercises at the end and all that stuff, all that good stuff. And Andrew is actually um, in the process of writing in his own ebook by himself, which I believe will be, I think, tier one speaking, or I, I don't want to, don't quote me on that. I, I forget, but his ebook's going to be amazing right now. So those will be two things to really look forward to within the next few months. Very cool. And um, so you're relaunching the website, um, but it, it will have the same uh, URL? I think so. I'm not 100% sure. Andy deals with most of that, but it should be. It should be the performancevibe.com, yeah. Okay, and that's where you go um, if people want to contact you and all that. Is that the easiest way to get a hold of you? Exactly, the performancevibe.com, or we have an email that's just contactperformancevibe at gmail.com. Yeah. Or uh, most people honestly just like Instagram best, just like the performance vibe, uh, direct message us, and then we'll refer you to a different email from there. That tends to be easiest for people. Yeah, very cool. Um, well, I'll link all that when the podcast comes up. If anybody's interested, they can go there and um, thank you. And check really out. appreciate that, man. Really yeah. appreciate that. <clears throat> for sure. Um, well, we're about out of time. I want to uh, thank you very much for um, being on the show. And uh, do you have any um, advice that you would give to like a, a new first year 
strong man, like just uh, one piece of advice. Keep an open mind, and that's probably it. I mean, if you have an open mind, you're going to be a good strong man because keeping an open mind is going to require you to always switch things up to get better at new goals. Keeping an open mind is going to allow you to overcome things that are going to happen on game day that might not be ideal. So I think, uh, like I learned, like learned it originally as having like heavyweight patience, but it's just like keeping an open mind to things. So that's it. Very cool. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, I want to thank you very much again. Uh, this has been John the Viking Mauser with Nick Hedge. Get strong or die.